we would seek to serve you, therefore, especially concerning today, we pray um, that you would help us to understand how it is to live an obedient Christian life um, in the ways that you've outlined in this chapter of the Bible. Thank you for this time, Lord. We pray that you would just bless it in your name. Amen. So if you guys uh, will look at the screen, I'm not sure uh, if it'll uh, come up right, but uh, I have at least just a really quick kind of outline of at least the four points so far that we've covered uh, in our Christian Worldview series. Just to recap a little bit right before we start, and I thought the best way to write all of those things would be stating it um, starting with we defend. The whole point of this worldview series is to highlight all of the verses around 1 Peter 3.15, which says, always be prepared to make a defense. So as we're considering Christian worldview, we're considering it in light of um, having opposition to worldview um, in terms of people disagreeing with the Christian worldview, and therefore we are defending what we know is true, and at least in four different ways. Um, the first uh, message that we did in verse 13, we learned the defense of the goodness of God. The goodness of God as it pertains to God having created the whole world and everything he created is good. And two evidences we have to show unbelievers and opponents um, is the evidence of the goodness within man. That is not their good in their nature, but the fact that man and woman has some kind of sense that moral right and moral wrong exist, that it's outside of the human experience and is very much in their minds, which is demonstrated, demonstrated through their conscience. And even more than that, the goodness um, that must be in society in order for society to run appropriately. And these evidences aren't enough to make anyone a believer. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But there's a goodness inherent in God's design that has not been totally destroyed that we can't help people look at those evidences and explain to them there is a God who exists and he is good. And the second thing we learned right after that was the truth about suffering, which is the counterpoint even to the first uh, point. Just as God created a girl, good world, man, specifically Adam and Eve and every man following, wanted to be God themselves. And in their attempt to determine what is good themselves, sin and suffering enters the world. However, we also know that the truth of suffering for the Christian is that even though suffering in of itself is bad, it is used by God sovereignly as a tool to mature us. Suffering is used by God to demonstrate to us that we are weak people and we need God's strength to continue in this world and to hold onto him tighter. And as suffering makes us do that, hold onto him as our anchor for hope, we therefore get through our suffering on the other side, becoming stronger believers who love God even more. And that third point really leads, that second point rather leads to the third point, which is the true Christ that is in Christianity. Christianity is called Christianity for a reason, and it's because it is about Christ. He is the definer and authenticator of our faith, and we need to know who he was as a person who really walked on this earth, fully man, fully God, so that we can determine how we should think, how we should behave, and most specifically and importantly, how it is that we're saved. And that very easily leads to our fourth point, which is that Christianity defends the one true hope. In understanding who Christ is and what he's done, we understand that he is our only hope. Even like we sang in Sunday morning service a couple weeks ago, that Christ is our living hope. 
that he died and he was resurrected. And through his sacrifice, we have salvation that was promised throughout the entire Old Testament, no matter what God's people did to remove themselves um, from earning any kind of salvation in which mankind has always proved that they do not deserve the goodness of God. Instead, he has saved us regardless through grace, that he saved us as a free gift because of his sovereign love that glorifies him and consequently invites us into his kingdom. So those are the four defenses we've had so far. And I think the easiest way to get from those things to what we're talking about today is that all of those things mainly explain the what of a Christian worldview. And today's message, we're going to be dealing with the how. That is the what in terms of the information behind the Christian worldview. Today, we're dealing with the how. When opponents attack Christianity and we have to share words that explain a Christian worldview, we also do that from a person. Evangelism doesn't just happen by dropping information into their heads. You have to explain it. And therefore, Christian behavior, the how that is being shared, is the next thing Peter is going to address. And he does that at the end of verse 15 and verse 16, which is what we'll be covering today. I'm going to read for you 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16 but we'll be focusing mainly on the last part of 15 and then verse 16, which says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter, in this part of our text, asks a very simple and direct question. Peter asks the people in Rome who are suffering because of the gospel, yet are holding tight to the gospel, he asks this question. Does what you think affect the way you live your life? Does what you think affect your behavior? Is Christianity something that you know, or is it something that you also do? Do you have to tell people that you are Christian and that you love Christ, or do people watch your life and your behavior and they know or they assume that you are a Christian? The whole point that Peter is making, if you could sum it up in a sentence, is that Peter is saying that Christianity is show and tell. It is not only telling, but it is showing. Christianity is show and tell. I don't know if when you guys were in kindergarten, you did show and tell, but show and tell is one of those very beginning phases of kindergarten where you have to try and explain something you care about by usually bringing in a real object, sometimes a person, uh, to explain something that you care about. And I was looking online, I was thinking of all of the things when I was in kindergarten uh, that happened for show and tell, and there are some pretty funny things, but not nearly as crazy as some of the stuff that I found online about show and tell. Uh, one of the stories I found of a kid bringing in an item for show and tell in kindergarten was a pair of gloves. Uh, and as he began to explain that he wore the pair of gloves when him and his father went out at night and played hide and seek. And as he explained more and more, it turned out that his father made the kid wear gloves and then sneak him into windows of people's houses and start stealing stuff for him. So the gloves were to hide his fingerprints. And so unfortunately he came in to show and tell a pair of gloves and ended up showing and telling way too much information that ended up getting his, his father into jail, which is pretty unfortunate. I don't even think that one is as crazy as the second one that I found out, which is 
uh, one kid uh, found out that his father was a, uh, his grandfather rather was a World War II veteran. And when he went through his stuff, he found an unexploded grenade. And so he brought that pin taken out and everything, unexploded grenade into the school to show everyone. And as soon as he explained that it was a real grenade that really didn't explode, uh, the teacher immediately grabbed all the kids, started screaming, threw them all outside, and the bomb squad was called in to defuse the situation. And fortunately, nothing happened. It was totally fine, but pretty crazy story for that kid. Now, I, the point of show and tell is always supposed to be whether you have something incredibly dramatic to show or whether you have something very undramatic to show. The point is that when a kid, even a kindergartner, brings in um, a story to tell somebody, words can only do so much. But when you bring in a real tangible object that someone can see, it kind of brings to life the thing that someone's trying to explain. And it really brings to life the kind of desire that a kindergartner has for something in their life. The way you can even think about it is the fact that some people, I think I'd probably be one of those people, describes themselves as visual learners. I think a number of you guys have mentioned that there's something about even having a whiteboard or slides for some of you, um, or even being in a classroom as opposed to being on Zoom watching class, that visuals help people learn things. It's one thing to hear words being talked at you, like right now. It's another thing to have some kind of object to look at or to help further explain something. And what Peter's trying to say is that Christians are teaching the gospel through show and tell by being a visual for people. The whole point that this sermon is going to lead up, if I spoil it right now, is that Christians are in some way supposed to illustrate Christ with their lives. We have never seen Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that you love Christ though you've not seen him. But the point that he was trying to say is the people that he's explaining, he is trying to demonstrate what Christ likeness is. And he's trying to explain that through his actions. That he loves people, he is charitable to people, he is honest with people, and he has tangible acts of service for people as a way of demonstrating the value of the Christian worldview and how transformative it is to the person who holds that worldview. And the amazing thing is he sums all that character up in only two words. The whole Christian conduct in which you are explaining the gospel is summed up in two words. And so what we're going to do is really just look at those two words and see how that changes the way we think about a Christian worldview. The two words here are mentioned at the very end of verse 15, and the first word is gentleness. The way that a Christian is supposed to explain the Christian worldview is through gentleness. Now, gentleness is not the character trait that I think, because we have a good understanding of what gentleness is. Gentleness is not the character trait that people think that they need to work on the most. I'm not sure how you guys uh, do this in your small groups, but I think every once in a while in a small group, the question might be, what is something that you are trying to work on? What is something in your life that you are trying to demonstrate better? Some people will say, I talk too much. I'm trying to be a better listener than a talker. Some people will say, I think I'm too selfish. I need to focus on other people. Some people will say, I need to work on humility. But very rarely, if ever, people are saying they need to work on being a more gentle person. I think this is especially kind of tricky for guys to think. I don't know the last time you were talking to a leader in your life that you think is particularly macho. It's definitely not me. Um, none of those people are going to tell you that you need to cultivate gentleness in your life. 
Gentleness is a trait that makes you seem weak. Gentleness is a trait that makes you seem soft and too soft and tender that you wouldn't be able to deal with something in the world. If you are gentle, then you are sensitive, supposedly. It's the opposite of being powerful. It's the opposite of being mature. At least that's the implication that people put on it. I think one place that's really helpful to counteract that false understanding of gentleness is to consider Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, we have this amazing chapter in which God is demonstrating his power. Isaiah explains the power of the almighty God in verse 10 of chapter 40, where he says, the Lord God comes with might. Verse 21, he says that the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. They are so small and weak that God could just step on them and there would be dangerous, disastrous consequences for the person. But he doubles down two verses later. In Isaiah 40, 23, he says that he brings princes to nothing. In verse 24, he says, when God blows on the rulers of the earth, they wither. I was actually, when I read this verse, I immediately thought of uh, spoiler alert, if you're not a Marvel person, I was thinking of the end of Infinity War. Close your ears for a second if you don't want me to spoil it for you. At the end of Infinity War, Thanos snaps his fingers and people turn into dust. Raise your hand if you're familiar with this concept. Or, yeah, okay. But the way that Thanos could only do that was after he had collected all the fin Infinity Stones, correct? Thanos in himself is not that powerful. God just... <gasps> And in a simple exhale, he has the power to make people turn into dust. That kind of power is almost unfathomable. It's almost too much to even comprehend. And the point that he's saying is this is basically a giant flex from God saying absolutely no authority, no power, no opponent is comparable to me. I am the definition of power. And in this chapter, God still adds this verse in verse 10 that God will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them and he will gently lead them. In a chapter in the Bible explaining the power of God, God still describes himself as also gentle. Gentle is not a weak quality. God is gentle. God is the person who defines himself as all powerful, yet he uses, as a couple of commentators have said, some of the most gently beautiful language in all of the Bible. There is almost no illustration that better explains the gentleness of God as comparing himself to a shepherd who is leading his lambs to water or food or whatever they need, even literally picking them up. If you guys remember from our minor prophet study when we were in the book of Hosea, there's a verse there that says, God leads Israel like a father going, uh, using his arms and leading them. Like a child is learning how to walk and they lift their arms and a father slowly grabs the arms and allows them to walk. God is powerful and yet he is still gentle, which is why that Greek word that's actually used here means stoop down. It's to lay down and pick somebody up rather than assuming someone can pick themselves up. It's simply helping someone. And the understanding is not necessarily an assumed weakness on the other person's part, but rather a sensitivity, a going out of your way to help someone, whether they are particularly sensitive or not. Jerry Bridges, um, a Christian pastor and author who has now passed away, he's with the Lord now, and I would recommend to you guys almost any book that he's ever written. Jerry Bridges explained gentleness this way. He said, gentleness is illustrated 
by the way that we would handle a carton of exquisite crystal glasses. It is the recognition that the human personality is valuable, but fragile, and it must be handled with care. Two other words that could be used to describe gen uh, gentleness is sensitivity, or the word that I really like that Jerry Bridges uses, considerateness. It's assuming a kind of care that you owe an opponent, even if they are disagreeing with your Christian worldview. It's going out of your way to explain the worldview in a way that is helpful, in a way that assumes that they need to be brought to a knowledge of the truth with kindness and with grace. There's a list, I think it was already on the screen, that explains a couple different ways that gentleness can be used in practical application, which some of them are correcting someone with kindness, avoiding coercion or threats. You are guiding someone to water, not pushing them into a stream. Avoiding blunt speech. This is one that's particularly difficult, that we as human beings naturally want to explain whatever is on our mind rather than using the words that we think would best explain the gospel in their ears. It's assuming trying to be the person and what would be most helpful to hear without necessarily changing the content of the message. It means that you're ready to sow consideration, like we've said, with the word considerateness. It's being quick to console or encourage someone, that you're never out to make somebody cry. And in fact, if someone does cry, you want to be quick with a tissue to wipe up their tears to demonstrate kindness. It means that the other person shouldn't feel threatened or resentful, and especially yourself, that you don't feel threatened by your opponents. Now, they may not love you, they may not care for you, but you still want to demonstrate care for that person. It doesn't degrade sin-struggling Christians. It means if something that is a sin is not something you struggle with, but is something they struggle with, you don't assume that they're inferior to you, and you don't assume that you're a better Christian than them. They just have different weaknesses than you do, and you want to help them in their weaknesses. Gentleness seeks restoration, and it also is humble, and it understands yourselves that it is very easy to be a hypocrite. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, help other people, but take heed lest you fall that you recognize sensitivity because you want people to be gracious and sensitive to you as well. That's a lot of information about gentleness. And I think if we are gonna try and consider the practical implications of this, I wanna address something that I was thinking about. I think you guys have heard the term snowflake before. Raise your hand if you've heard the term snowflake. I think there's enough scoffs to assume that people have heard that. I think you guys know, if you don't know what a snowflake is, a snowflake is somebody usually in a political field or dealing with politics who is particularly sensitive to other people disagreeing with their opinions. And so they respond very, very angrily or very, very sadly that you might just say you disagree with their opinion and they immediately begin to cry. It's a sign that the other person is not tough. And if you were to take that understanding of a snowflake, and you were to be a Christian explaining a worldview. The question that we have to ask is, is this something that applies to people who are sensitive over things they shouldn't be sensitive about? Why can't the gospel come with a certain level of heavy handedness? Because it's an important and serious message. And if someone is too sensitive to hearing about some things, well, that's too bad for them because we need to share the gospel with them. And if they're wrong and we're right because we're on God's side, then they can hear it whether they have bad feelings about it or not. Before we think like that too quickly, consider this. 
if you are going to share the gospel, the greatest news in the world, you are also necessarily having to share some of the worst news in the world, actually the worst news in the world, which is that you are talking to someone who is bound for eternal judgment in hell. That is something someone should be sensitive about. You are explaining to this person that their sin has not gone past God, but he has observed every single thing that they have done in their life against God. And because of that, God has judged them worthy of eternal punishment. That is a hard thing to tell somebody. That should be told someone with all of the grace that you would want to receive if you had never heard that for the first time. God has explained the gospel through bad news of our eternal judgment, but he has come alongside us to give us eternal salvation. And the hard parts of, those message, of that message is very, very hard. And almost nobody is going to listen to you if you do that bluntly. The gospel is never supposed to be a hammer on top of somebody's skull. At its very most painful, the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews chapter 4 that it's like a scalpel that is beginning to convict someone through pricks and cuts, but nonetheless binding and healing them up that they would understand their exposure before God, but necessarily their salvation from God. So gentleness is not a trait that is weak, and it is not a trait that can be ignored. It is so necessary in evangelistic witness to people who do not know the gospel. That's the first word that Peter uses to explain. And the second word is equally as important, which is the word respect. Peter says that you are explaining a Christian worldview respectfully. Now, again, respect is something that I think us as believers or people who mainly understand church functions or have heard this word before or understand our community, I think we actually understand what respect is amongst ourselves. But the rest of the world has a very different understanding of respect. In the public sphere or in culture nowadays, respect is something that means you simply hold back your religious views and allow people to live out their own religious convictions. Respect means not disagreeing with people. Respect means that you cater to whatever interests they do, no matter how morally wrong you think their behavior is. They are entitled to it, and you do not tell them the consequences of their own behavior. Now, of course, that is very different from a Christian understanding of respect, but we need to understand respect the way the Bible explains it. And the way that the Bible explains the word respect is the word honor or reverence. I think the most immediate thing that should come to mind is the difference in meeting someone with a high five or with a bow. High fives are nice. I love high fives, but a high five has a kind of equality in different people. But if you are in a culture in which people bow to somebody else, it is a demonstration that the other person is valuable. Actually, it's a demonstration that the other person is more valuable, of more worth than you consider yourself to have. It's a kind of reverence. It's a kind of adoration. And the reason that that gets translated towards people well is because it actually starts with God. Respect is translated differently depending on the object of the person that you are directed towards. That word towards a person is respect, but that is a person who has at the most equal worth than you, though you consider them worthy or worth more than you. But when that action is directed towards God, who has infinite worth more than you, the word is not respect anymore. The word becomes fear. 
And we talked about the word fear when we were doing verse 15, that you are to honor Christ as holy, that you are to fear him, that you are to revere him. The understanding is a kind of respect to the heights that you are not caring about necessarily a kind of shaking or hiding or weeping, but that you understand how powerful God is and the due penalty you have for your sins. And therefore your life is different that you are watching your steps because you know that God is watching you. I think Psalm 33 verse six to nine explains this very, very well with the word all. Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the deep as a heap and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The point is that when you know God sees you and he sees your sin, you act differently. You're not freaking out every time you do anything, but you recognize a kind of worthiness that he has over you. And so you take your life seriously. Respect in one case is not only being a serious person, but treating the gospel seriously and expressing seriousness to the person you're talking to because the gospel is serious business. That's why another way you could translate respect is dignity. That you're treating the person seriously with the gospel because they are not just a heap of cells or a fleshly random being in front of you who's just in your way for you getting somewhere. They are someone who will live forever. They are someone who has not just a brain and not just a heart, but they have a soul. And so God forbid in your life that you would ever not only not take the gospel seriously, but the gospel would never become a joke. The gospel would never become a punchline. The gospel would never become a means to an end of entertainment, but rather it would be everything in your life that memes that undermine fundamental Christian doctrines would no longer be funny to you. Not because you're just trying to live in freaked out disobedience, but you know how much honor and worth God has and you would hate to misrepresent him or explain the gospel as anything other than the most serious and important message in someone's whole life. And that means publicly and privately. That's why Christians don't gossip. It's because you understand the value of that person. Really what it comes down to is that gentleness and respect are actually two sides of the very same coin. The idea of gentleness is that it picks people up so they can see God's forgiveness. And respectfulness is picking people up so that they see the serious punishment that their sin deserves, yet God has made that sin known to us. Gentleness regards your opponent as someone who needs help, even if they don't know it. And respectfulness regards your opponent as someone who has worth, even if they don't think you have worth. Gentleness and respect really sum up all of the conduct that Christian content should be directed towards someone else. And the reason that those two words really sum it up easily is incredibly simple. The reason gentleness and respect are so important is because you become a living illustration of Jesus Christ. Gentleness and reverence, in a way, are two words that sum up everything about the life of Christ. Listen to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. 
Christ says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Really excellent translation of gentleness is restfulness. When people came to Christ, they understood that he was not someone who put burdens upon people. He was someone who revealed the burdens already on people and removed those burdens from those people. Do people see that in you? Are you someone that easily makes friends, not because you're Mr. or Mrs. Personality, but because people find rest when they are with you? Are you someone who likes to convict people of their problems, or are you someone who likes to reveal the solutions to people's problems as best as you can? Are you someone in which people wish to interact with you because you don't act like a know-it-all, but rather you admit all of the things you do not know? Are you someone who handles people like they're a fine glass, like Jerry Bridges explained? that they're not so sensitive or so fragile, but they have a whole backstory of certain amounts of pain and suffering that you care about and you want them to meet Jesus Christ to have that burden relieved from them. Are you that kind of person? But of course, that's only one of those things. Christ was not only gentle, but he was also respectful and reverent, most importantly towards the Father. And he directed people to recognize their God as someone worthy of serious reverence. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 and 31 says this. Christ says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Christ was quick to explain the serious nature of hell, but he was also quick to explain the serious value upon all of the people he saw because he was looking at people who bore the image of God and in seeing the image of God on those people, he recognized the serious of their situation. He saw directly into their hearts and he explained that he had come to save them. The gospel was never a laughing matter. And though he was gentle, he was also serious in explaining the profundity, the power, and the beauty of the gospel. The point that we are trying to make here is that we are supposed to demonstrate a living illustration in our lives and in our behavior of Jesus Christ. We are not a replacement to Jesus Christ, but we have become like and want to be more like Jesus Christ. And when people see that, it makes a difference. And it is the biggest impact of your Christian worldview. And the natural thing we should be thinking right now is, Clifton, what the heck is wrong with you? I cannot be Jesus Christ. I cannot fix my behavior in such a way that I can just be God to people. I cannot make my life so great in such a way that I never demonstrate any of my mistakes and people always see me as perfect. That's okay. That is not what Peter is saying. You are not supposed to be a representation of Christ perfectly. The point is you are supposed to display your transformation. 
Understanding this should make us understand that we cannot change our own behavior, but Christians believe fundamentally through experience that God has transformed our behavior because he has transformed our hearts first. So we are not terrified to change our behavior. Our behavior has naturally changed because of the love that we have for Christ and the desire we have to live out a Christian image to other people. And there's at least two things in this text that I think very clearly explain that. The first is that in verse 16, Peter explains that a Christian has what? Verse 16 says a Christian has a good conscience. Now, if you remember all the way back, probably over a month ago now, at the very first message in this series, we talked about the fact that even unbelievers have a conscience. But that's not what Peter says now. Peter doesn't talk here about everyone having a conscience. He talks about believers having a good conscience. Big difference. Unbelievers in living in sin and obeying sin in such a way that they begin to, like sandpaper against their conscience, degrade it, taint it, and destroy it. But rather for Christians, we have been given a new heart. Our previous conscience that didn't understand all of goodness and wrongness has now seen Jesus Christ and our old consciences have been taken away and a new conscience directed by the scriptures and heightened and made muscular and strong because of the power of the Holy Spirit can now operate in such a world that we naturally love good and therefore we act good to other people. The way that First Timothy explains it is that the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. And that love, he says, issues from three things. It issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And to explain the importance of the conscience, he says later in verse 18 and 19, that we wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. You cannot create a good conscience in yourself, God has given you, as a result of salvation, a good conscience that becomes informed by Scripture. But the Holy Spirit will direct you to Scripture as a response to your transformation. 1 Timothy 1.12 is really helpful here because when Paul is explaining that point to Timothy, he makes it very, very clear that this is not a result of his ability to do it himself, but to make sure that he knows it's a result of transformation. Between those two verses in 1 Timothy, Paul explains his own conversion to drive the point home. He says that I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an ignorant opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted in ignorance and in unbelief, and the grace of the Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul was not looking for Christ, but Christ came looking for him. In you demonstrating a Christian worldview and the information through a person who has been transformed with a clean and pure conscience, God is sending you as his representative, as his ambassador, ambassador to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And in so doing that, 
You can have hope knowing that just like Paul did it through Christ who gave him strength, you too can do it through Christ who gives you strength. And I think that's doubled down by Peter in the second part of verse 16. When Paul points towards this being summed up as your good behavior in Christ. When you are slandered, verse 16, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You don't just have good behavior. You have good behavior through Christ. You have good behavior in Christ. One of the greatest doctrines you could ever understand or ever study is the union with Christ. That you are not someone saved by Christ and abandoned. You are someone who has been given the Holy Spirit, transformed in such a way that you can never, ever lose Christ. You can never, ever abandon him because a good father would never allow his child to go, especially when he has the power to hold the stars in place and to hold all of the universe together. He can certainly keep your salvation. And because of that, he can certainly transform your behavior into good behavior because he will always give you reasons by which you want to behave as a different person. Your desires, your behavior is fundamentally changed by the information because you're not just gaining a worldview, you are gaining the greatest friendship and relationship that you could ever know. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And it says this, that we all with unveiled face, that is, people who are looking face to face with Christ, though we do not literally see him, we have his word and we understand who he was without anything in the way. We look directly at Christ as he wants to be known because he has given us his word for word heart through the Bible. With that unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God has promised that you will be transformed into a person that is his representative, into someone who is more like him if you look at him. If you focus yourself on understanding your own weakness and your own frailty and your own sensitivity, and you turn to Christ, and you trust that his salvation has not only bought you eternal life, it has bought you a transformed heart that will live on to eternity, but is right now desirous and excited to do good works and to explain the gospel to people who have never known goodness in their life. Guys, people have not met a lot of gentle people. People have not met a lot of respectful people. You probably haven't met a lot of those people. I have not met a lot of those people. There are people who are very gentle and there are people who are very serious and respectful. But not only do you not get a lot of both of those together, but the genuineness of their behavior is usually not because they care about your mortal soul. Fortunately for us, Christ did care for our mortal soul. Fortunately for us, Jesus Christ did care enough for us, not because we were special, not because we were good, but because in order to glorify himself, he sent his son to die on the cross, living a perfect life freely given to us and dying a perfect death so that we would not bear the wrath of the father in hell for eternity. And because he has done that, 
We walk straight through death and into eternal life simply from this. I love Christ and I want to be with him. And Christ will put everything in place for you to be like him and to one day see him face to face. And because of that, you will naturally behave like him. You will always want to be like your greatest role model. Christ is so much more than a role model, but he's so illustrative. He's so like a good model in the fact that the more time you spend with him, that you think about him, you dwell on him and understand his goodness and how he loves you, you will naturally be that way to other people. And the Holy Spirit will definitely give you strength to do that. And I pray, and I hope you pray as well, that as the people you interact with see that through you, they're going to ask that question. What reason do I have to be hopeful in this life? And your conduct will naturally open up a conversation in which you literally get to explain how someone gets to be a family member to you and live with you for eternity because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, you are eternally good. You are immeasurably good. You are wonderfully and marvelously good. You're so much better than our words can explain. And even in this amount of time that we have, it is so impossible to explain just how good you are. But Lord, we pray that that goodness would well up inside of us so much that we would be about to burst with that news to other people. But let it not just affect our minds and our hearts, let it affect our behavior. Let us help to pick people up when they fall down. Let us be the person to enter a conversation and say, some things should be taken seriously and sacred and some things should not be joked about. Not because we want to be a killjoy, but because we want to alert people to the serious danger that they're in. And we want to gently lead them into the good news that you have saved sinners. Just like you said yourself, Lord, in the gospel of Luke, that you did not come for the healthy, you came to save the sick. Lord, we are and we were the sick. We have been, and some of us will still be sick. It is so hard to comprehend and understand a gospel of cosmic proportions when we are so blinded by our ways and so blinded by our sin. But Lord, please open the eyes of those who do not know the gospel. And for us who do know the gospel, Lord, let it shine more brightly and brightly through your Father's face, through yourself. Jesus, let us gaze on you without sin, that we would have a purified understanding of the good behavior we can have because of the good desires that you have placed in our hearts. Let us be like you. Thank you for this time, Lord. Please bless the remaining time we have for small groups as well. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. So before you guys go to small groups, a couple of things. First of all, thank you so much, as always, for listening to the sermon. Um, I love uh, getting emails just about questions and such. You're always welcome to come and ask me questions or your leaders questions about uh, anything from the sermon. Um, If you tell me you didn't understand it at all, that's okay. Uh, I'm not a perfect communicator and I need tips from you guys about different things. So if you have any questions or comments from me, you're more than welcome to tell me. Uh, a couple other just really random um, uh, announcements. One of them is something that some of you guys have been asking about, and I can kind of officially tell you, we are having a summer retreat that is happening. 
So, yay, cool. Um, so we're just in the midst of organizing it now, but we do have a contract for a place that we're going to that we'll share more info now. What you need to know now is to reserve a couple dates. Reserve the dates August 12th to the 15th. That is a Thursday to a Sunday. We'll probably leave Thursday night, come back Sunday. It's just kind of over a weekend because it's nice to have two full days of camp. So remember the dates August 12th to 15th. I'll write it in the email for next week. Um, those are the dates that we're going to be going. So probably a couple weeks or a week before a lot of you guys go back to school. Uh, it's looking pretty sweet. It's a really sweet campground. A couple of us are going to visit. Uh, Josh actually mentioned a couple of days ago he's been there. So he has firsthand experience that it's pretty sweet. A lot of, a lot of cool stuff. So reserve those dates and uh, keep, uh, keep a lookout for... Um, uh, some email confirmations and some stuff for sign up and costs and what you need to bring and what's going to happen, all that stuff. Actually, tomorrow I'm going to uh, talk to a, a potential speaker, which is going to be really, really cool because you guys are probably, you've heard me enough. So we're going to get somebody else. Um, uh, past that, uh, just a reminder that in two weeks, we're going to start having Vineyard Church, uh, another church that uh, uses this building on Saturdays. So we're going to try and do our best after small groups in the next uh, two weeks from now to just make sure that this looks really nice for them, just to demonstrate actually gentleness and kindness to them and love them um, as brothers and sisters. So we wanna do that for them. Uh, other than that, uh, you guys can meet in your small groups. Remember, you can go, feel free to go past 9.30 if you are having good conversation, but you are uh, free at 9.30 if the, the conversation is good. 